Hi friends, Derek Sweatman here, pastor of Atlanta Christian Church in beautiful downtown Atlanta. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's sermon podcast, the second Sunday of the Easter season 2017. Uh, This week's sermon is entitled Hope is the New Normal, and it is on the subject of, uh, you guessed it, hope. So please enjoy and we'll see you on Sunday. Grace and peace. When the darkness closes in When the shadows start to fall Again, good morning. Thanks for being here today. And uh, we're in this Easter season. I love the Easter season because it's not just a day for us. It's a full full seven Sundays of celebration, but just some reflection on what it means to... um, what it means to kind of live in light of the resurrection. So we're going to talk some more about that today. Over the next six Sundays, we're going to be in this letter uh, called First Peter. So if you have a Bible, First Peter, uh, it's called First Peter because there's two um, in the Bible. So we're going to be in the first one and verses three through nine of chapter one. Today, I'm going to read this in full and then so you can listen along uh, and we'll pray and then we'll talk about uh, some of the things in here. Are you ready? Yes. Are you excited? Yes. Thank you, guys. I got some things to say. All right. Here we go. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope. Say the phrase, living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray just for a moment. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for these words um, from your servant, Peter, uh, speaking to us down through these years. Uh, Help us to see something new in here and fresh for our lives today. In your name we pray and everyone said... So there are four gospel accounts in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, say those together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Very good. You guys are great students. Okay. Uh, Beyond that, beyond the biographies of Jesus that we have in our New Testaments, most of the New Testament is a collection of people's mail. That's pretty much what it is. It's intercepted correspondence that we've put in our Bibles. How did... There's really no way of knowing how many letters were written and sent to individuals and churches in the first uh, decades, even centuries of church history. It's thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Now we have, we, I say we, like you and I, like we have a collection, but I'm saying we as a people, uh, in libraries and in books, we have hundreds and hundreds of these ancient letters of church leaders, church fathers and mothers writing uh, to various congregations and individuals. But only a few of these ended up, and there are writings like that in the Bible. But these are real letters written by real people to people living in very real situations. And the letters are mostly about how they are to live out their faith in the resurrected Jesus on the street level of their first century 
day-to-day life. So these letters are very, they're like coaching letters. They're, uh, they help shape the faith of people living in very real situations at, their time, at that time. And these letters were also obviously very occasional or contextual. They're personal. So if we know the occasion, we can kind of learn something uh, for ourselves. So to help us do that, because I just like to do these sorts of things, but we'll look at verse 1. This is how Peter starts the letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, those who are elect, and I've highlighted it for you, say the word? Exiles. This is a term that Peter uses throughout the letter. He's, it's kind of a nickname for his audience. What is an exile? An exile is someone who's not at home. An exile is someone who feels displaced. Uh, whether by force or by choice, an exile doesn't feel like they're at home. They don't feel like their feet are secure on the ground. Now, in the Jewish history, exile has a story. Exile has a massive story that fills pages of our Old Testament, that the Jews lived in exile in Babylonian cities. And so Peter might be referencing that as a touch point, but he's giving this nickname to his audience because he knows his audience feels a bit uh, like they're not at home. They feel marginalized. They feel separated. They feel outcast. Why? Well, it has something to do with their faith. This is interesting, too. Exiles of the Dispersion, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. Say Bithynia. Bithynia. Now, why not highlight that? Because it's like the coolest name up there. (laughs) Uh, Bithynia is interesting. It tells us a little bit about the context of Peter's audience. So Bithynia is a Roman city, obviously, and... Uh, the governor of Bithynia at the turn of the 2nd century is named Pliny the Younger. So Pliny the Younger inherits this city uh, at the turn of the 2nd century, right at the year 100, a little past 100. And he's the governor of this city. And he has this dilemma. He has this dilemma because he takes the governorship of this city and there's all these Christians that are living in Bithynia. And he, he's never heard of them. He doesn't know what they are. He doesn't know what they believe. And so he doesn't know what to do with them. They're obviously not worshiping the gods of Rome, and so he's sort of like, I need to do something about this. And so he writes the Roman emperor, whose name is Trajan at the time, seeking advice on what he's supposed to do with these Christians. Now you'll see, I'm going to read a portion of this letter for you. Um, It's quite fascinating, and it gives you an inside look as to what the the culture was uh, for the people living in Bithynia at that time. Now, some background, uh, as if all that other stuff wasn't background, but some other background, some additional background. uh, What was happening was people were putting up these signs on public buildings and writing the names of Christians on the signs as kind of a call out. It was like sort of like, it's like the ancient sort of Twitter. And so they would put the names on a a wooden plaque and they would nail it to, you know, the government buildings. And then that would be brought to the attention of Pliny. And then here he is having trials with Christians trying to decide what to do with them. So let me read you some of the letter. Uh, I find this quite fascinating. So he, Pliny the Younger writes, Emperor Trajan, It is my practice, my Lord, to refer to you in all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can give better guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? That's how you always approach the emperor, by the way. Vader. Um, I have never participated, he says, I'm sorry, in trials of Christians. I therefore do not know what offenses they are or the practice to punish or investigate and to what extent. And I have not been a little hesitant. I've been a little hesitant. 
as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or no difference between the very young and the more mature, whether pardon is to be granted for repentance or if any man has once been a Christian, it does him no good to cease to be one, whether the name itself, even without offenses, uh, or only the offenses associated with the name are to be punished. So that's the introduction. And he says, meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, those who were called out. I have observed the following procedure. I interrogated these as to whether they were Christians. Uh, Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted, I ordered to be executed. For I, I want to stop there because that gives you the feel. So when Peter writes these people, he calls them exiles. They understand that because that's how they feel. Friends, family members have been standing trial. And he goes on, he says, For I had no doubt that whatever the nature of their creed, their stubbornness, and inflexible obstinacy, <laughs> surely deserved to be punished. There were others possessed of the same folly, but because they were Roman citizens, I signed an order for them to be transferred to Rome. And the letter is longer, but you get a sense that the nature of living life as the Jesus community, at least in this city, was tough. And so at the heart of Peter's letter is this very real issue of difficulty. The central theme of this letter is hardship and suffering and difficulty. Everything else uh, that goes with that, just basically what we would call normal life, it's very difficult. It can be very hard to live life in our world. And so the purpose for which Peter is writing this letter is to speak directly into the difficulties of these people's lives. But it's in our Bibles because they feel like we can benefit from that. It's here so that we can look back in time, maybe grab onto some things that feel familiar to us. None of us are being tried for our faith, but life is still difficult for all of us. And so there are definitely things that we can glean Uh, from this letter. And in the opening of our text, Peter writes, again, just repeating what I've already read, but blessed be the God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's a lot going on in just that little section of the letter, and it all circles around the resurrection of Jesus. And basically, it's Peter like saying, because of the resurrection, we now live like this. We now operate this way in our world. But at the center is a way of life that Peter points to, and it's a way of life that we're called to live because of the resurrection. And that's what I want to talk about today, and it's this life of hope, specifically this phrase, a living hope. Say that again, a living hope. Let's talk about hope and resurrection just for a second. They go together, don't they? Resurrection and hope go together. Easter, as we talked about last week, Easter commercials our good future. That's what it is. It like reminds us that death doesn't have the last word. That's a great thing to know. Uh, and that our future is a resurrected future. It's, and it's good for us, all of us individually and as a church, to curate that hope. To keep that alive. To keep it functioning. Uh, funerals are a time when this type of hope is most real. Because when you go to a funeral... I don't want to bring the day down. It's Easter season, but let me just say what you already know. When you go to a funeral, 
Everybody is staring at their future. Right? We don't get out of this without that. That's how that works. You know, I'm always like, Jesus, just come back. That'd be great, because I don't want to do that. You know? Anybody else with me on that? But as I get older, I'm like, he's kind of tarrying, you know? So, um, but we're all looking down the aisle of our very own future. And so, we not only have this resurrection hope for the person we know and love, but we also contemplate that for ourselves. And resurrection and hope, they just go together. It's a future hope, something we keep our sights on, keeps us moving. But the reminder here is to move through the world, not with a hope, but as a living hope. It's active. That hope is somehow animated in us. Now that's what I want to focus on as a community this morning, that hope is somehow animated in our lives. The resurrection doesn't just change our future, but it reshapes our present, it reshapes our here and now, and it reshapes how we live um, in the world that we inhabit. And at the center of that truth is that we will be a hopeful, a hopeful people. Now to get us there, let's talk about grumpy people. I want to talk about a grumpy people. This is a whole section, so buckle up. If I had to ask you who in your friendship group was the grumpy one, someone just said a name, and then and then identify that person in your group who is the most the most likely to bring every conversation down. Could you name that person? Please don't name that person. But could you name that person? Of course, you could name that person. Is it the whole group, maybe? Now, if you can't think of a person, it's you. Okay? If you're like, we're ship shape, everything's good in my group, it's you. Okay? Every group needs one, I think. And it's probably you if you can't name that person. Now, I've been a pastor, I, I worked at Kroger, got fired at Kroger in high school, um, worked at, because uh, the customer's always right. Um, worked at Chick-fil-A amazing job because it's chicken and then I went to college and then I was in ministry so my whole adult life has been doing what I'm doing right now I'm 44 so I've spent a lot of time doing this Um, and so I've been a pastor basically my whole adult life and I can say without hesitation that the church has equal share of people who are never happy um, always grumpy Always walking around with that RBF thing going on with their face. Always looking for the next window in any conversation. Any conversation. This, some people feel this is their calling. There's a window in the conversation and I shove negative in there. Yeah, but, and then I drop the gripe. I drop the negative. The complaint. People whose giftedness lies in the art of misery. That's their gift. It's the one they have. Uh, When I was a youth pastor, it was a very large church, over a thousand. So here's how it works in a church like that. In a church like ours, we can make decisions very quickly. Like, next week we're going to do the chairs this way. That's the way we're going to do it. We can do that. It doesn't bother anybody. Or we're like, hey, the parking's not going to work in this coming week, so we're going to do churches and houses. That's what we do. We do it. We can do things on a dime. We're small. We turn quickly. We can move and get out of there very fast. 
When you're in a larger church, it's more protocol. Like in a larger church, you can't just like walk in and go, let's just change everything. You can't, it takes a long time. It takes a long time to change the bulletin. It takes a long time to change the backgrounds on the screens. I don't know why people use backgrounds on screens, but it takes a long time because we don't live in the mountains, but here's the mountains during a worship song. It's beautiful. But um, so it takes a long time to change that stuff. It takes a long time to get a new pulpit. Takes, well, we changed just one thing because it was a problem. There was our, our sanctuary, uh, the worship center, whatever you call it, the big church. But um, you went in one way, but you came out the same way. So we had a few services, and so you got 800 people in a service, and then they're coming out, why, another six or 700 trying to get in. It's crazy. People bumping in, it just took forever. It'd be like four songs in, and we finally got people through. Um, kind of like here, but you guys are just late. So, uh, but, <laughs> thank you, Mark. <laughs> so, we changed it. There was another door going into a fellowship hall that you could get into the sanctuary from. The fellowship hall, so we're like, you know, it's only taken us years. Let's just, that's the entrance. It can come out this way as the exit. So we had this kind of like circular thing going on. Well, the guy whose host team greeter post had been right there at that sanctuary door for, I don't know, 15 years, was not happy with the new system. Because it was really just going to mess it. It was just a dumb thing, you know. And as a youth pastor, you're just like, you're rid of it. You know, you don't think in terms of like, well, maybe he's very supportive and he loves us. And, but, uh, so I wasn't very helpful. But we, so you make a decision and then you got to get into the volunteer base. And then this is where we had the problem was this guy didn't like the, the whole thing. I don't know why. Some people just don't like things because um, that's who they are. They're grumpy. And so this is what he did. We always said the pastor and the lead pastor was like, he's going to write in the moment. So let's all hang out a lot and see if he does it. Not to stop him, because who cares? It's just funny. But he's literally standing at the door with the bulletins, and people are coming in. As he gives them the bulletin, this is what he says to them. They want y'all to go that way. <laughs> That's what he said to everybody. They. This is no longer we, is what he did. They. Who's the they in a church? I'll tell you who the they is. It's me. It's the guy getting paid. It's the leadership. That's the they. This is the they in your, you have a they in your job. They want us to do this. This is the faceless person you can throw complaints at. But he was just, they want y'all to go, like, he just hated it so much that he disassociated himself with the whole decision. They, they want y'all to go, I have to do the accent. Okay. <laughs> now, I don't want to cast too much criticism his way because I, I have to fight that too. I didn't get one of those superlatives in high school, most likely to, whatever. I didn't get one of those. It's mostly because they didn't have the category of most likely to complain about everything, anything and everything. If they had that, I'd be in the yearbook, you know. But I still have to fight this too because I am opinionated. I can be grumpy. I can be uh, sarcastic. For those of you who know me, you're like... Duh. I can be uh, critical. Uh, my freshman year of college, I was in some Christmas program, and we were backstage. So it's freshman year. I've only been there a few months. Freshman year, a friend of mine, this girl comes up to me right before I go out to sing sleigh bells or something. <laughs> Whatever. She comes up to me, and she says, I've been meaning to tell you something for a couple of weeks now. And I'm like... Okay, so I'm thinking we're backstage. It's a moment. It's Christmassy. This is going to be like we should go out. <laughs> you know, why would you say anything else? And she says, 
you, uh, you are one of the meanest people I've ever known. <laughs> and then the guy with the headset's like sweating him out to sing sleigh bells, like whatever. We did not go out after that. <laughs> but it definitely caused me to like, am I? And I started asking my friends, and they're like, I mean, you know, once they say that, <laughs> once they say that, you're like, no, 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 don't do that. I mean, like, you know, what, what's wrong? What am I doing? So, but those things are true. It's, it's in me to gravitate towards the downside of just about everything. When things don't go my way, when my ideas don't work or, or accept it, when people push back on me, when people annoy me, when it feels like I'm failing, when it feels like things aren't working, vocalized and animated misery is the most attractive response to me. That's what I want to do. I want to lash out. I want to complain. I want to make myself look better by just being grumpy. And though it seems like a really small thing, part of my Christian duty, part of your Christian duty, is to work very hard at sidelining that kind of behavior, that kind of life, that kind of reflex to life. Part of our Christian duty is to fight that urge. Like, we can't just say, well, you know I'm going to just insert your nationality, ethnic heritage. It doesn't matter. Well, you know my parents were angry. Or you know my job sucks. Or this, that, and the other. It's like, our job, our duty, is to sideline as best we can that kind of reflex to life. And work instead on being this person of hope. That I would be hope-animated. That hope is not something I have just in the future, but it's something that's living and breathing in me now. A few things about hopeful people, about living, people of living hope. Hopeful people deal in the expectation of renewal. They expect renewal. They expect renewal to happen in people's lives. They can look at situations that feel hopeless and say, there's a way out of this. And the way out will not be through complaint, but through action. Hopeful people deal very well in the expectation of renewal. Hopeful people are drawn to places where hope is most needed. These are the people who perk up when we announce service projects or trips or things we're doing in the city. They're attracted. They're drawn to places where hope is most needed. Hopeful people consciously and intentionally wrestle with pessimism. It's not about ignoring it because it's very real. But they consciously wrestle with it. Now some of you are like still back in the college story. How mean were you? Because if you know me very well, you know that I'm very, I can be that way. It's a daily battle for me. It's a daily fight and a wrestling match for me. Hopeful people, they curate the art of encouragement. This is so key for us as church people, to be encouraging people. Like when people are around you, do they feel less encouraged or more encouraged? Do they feel more hopeful or less hopeful? That's what we're supposed to do. Hopeful people 
leave others feeling better about their lives, their situations, their stories. They just have a way of bringing hope out of every situation. And we live in a world that is addicted to watching people crash. We love that. We love, it's like, it's a TMZ world. Like, let's just follow the celebrity down the path of self-destruction. That's what we like. Very rare are the shows and the stories about people going the opposite direction. Or about someone breaking in and saying, let's find the renewal in this, not the destruction. And Peter says, and these people had a lot to be negative about, a lot to be grumpy about, a lot to complain about. And Peter says to them that we have been, again, born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That because of the, in the light of the resurrection... We live in a new kind of reality. That's what we talked about on Easter if you were here last Sunday. Has any pastor ever had to say, if you were here last Sunday for Easter, of course you were here last Sunday for Easter. You were somewhere for Easter. But we are called to live, the whole landscape of the world has changed because of the resurrection, and we are called to live in that new landscape. Uh, New Testament scholar Joel Green uh, says it this way, some great language. this, what Peter announces then is a conversion of the imagination. Love that. Personal reconstruction within a new web of relationships. Resocialization within a new community. And the embodiment of a new life world evidenced in altered dispositions and, what's that last word? Attitudes. Boom. That's what Peter's talking about. Hope is a thing that we, it's an alteration. It doesn't come natural. And friends, we're called to, again, eschew the tendency towards day-to-day, low-grade misery and instead lean headlong into the reality of the resurrection. We are made to be an Easter people, not a Lenten people. We leave Lent and we enter the new reality. The tomb is empty. That means things are going to work out. God has this under control. There's hope beyond this life, but... Our task is to be that hope now, a living hope. From the front of your bulletin, N.T. Wright says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with what? The life of heaven. That's our job. As a community of people, as a church family, let's give the Easter season over to hope Let's sideline all the stuff that's anti-hope for just a season. It's unfair for me to say to myself and to you, hey, just be hopeful from now on forever because we're going to go through seasons where we're not. But let's at least dedicate this season to working hard and wrestling with making hope primary in our lives, in our conversations, even in our deepest thoughts. Let us be a living hope to our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, family, in the coming weeks. Let's push back on the old self, that self that Lent always reminds us of. And let's take steps towards being a people of hope, people living in light of the resurrection 
Amen.